0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: Today's episode is phenomenal. You're going to want to listen to the whole thing. You're going to hear from a guy who's on the Forbes under 40 or 40 under 40 list, who's raised $270 million in nonprofit funds to change the world. You're going to hear about what makes him tick. Uh, the things he thinks about, what's inside his mindset. And you're going to hear some stories that will you just simply won't believe. This is a fantastic episode. If you want to feel gratitude, you want to feel inspired, uh, this, is, uh, this is an incredible episode. I'll see you at the end of it. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that if you're a daydreamer, it probably means you're smart. <laughs> and that's because A new study from the Georgia Institute of Technology, apparently they do have technology in Georgia, but uh, I didn't know about that. Just kidding, friends from Georgia. Uh, But uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology found that daydreamers are probably people who are just really smart and creative. People with efficient brains have too much brain capacity to stop their minds from wandering. So you basically get bored in a meeting because like, this isn't a high enough bandwidth scenario, so my mind is going to wander, and during that time you might actually create some amazing stuff. And what they did is they looked at brain patterns of more than 100 people where they laid in an MRI machine to determine what their brains look like when they're at rest compared with active times. And what you probably could take away from this research is that allowing your brain periods of rest might make it work harder for you and that having an occasional time where you schedule daydreaming in. Maybe you, this is the second time I've said this, which is probably not a smart move, But I'll tell you, maybe occasionally driving without a podcast playing (laughs) might be a time for you to daydream. Just watch what happens in there. Uh, But if you fill every waking moment of your consciousness with information coming in versus paying attention to the information coming out, you're probably missing out on something. A little bit of daydreaming is a good deal and probably more so if you're 10 years old. Uh, Before we get into today's show, I've got to tell you about the bulletproof ice cream recipe called Get Some Ice Cream. And this is something that's in the Bulletproof Diet. It's in Bulletproof the Cookbook and it's on the Bulletproof website uh, at bulletproof.com. And what you do is you use Brain Octane or XCT oil and, uh, and whatever kind of flavorings you like. I prefer to use the Bulletproof uh, chocolate powder. And this is something I feed my kids for breakfast. <laughs> what, uh, what this came about from was because In the early days of Bulletproof, I was actually working on restoring my wife's fertility. She was infertile, now she's a fertility uh, doctor who does consulting with clients. And we needed a way to get the right kinds of fat into the diet. And I made this ice cream full of egg yolks and all the good stuff. And what ended up happening is you eat the ice cream, and then an hour later, you get this overwhelming desire to go to the bedroom. And it's because when your body gets a signal that says everything I need to make a healthy baby is present, let's go try to make a healthy baby. You might think I'm kidding, I'm not. <laughs> this ice cream is is a repeated winner for, for that perspective. It works better than vodka. And you've gotta have brain octane or XCT, grass-fed butter, and some coconut oil, uh, potentially, and some eggs, and there's the whole recipe on the website. But if you make this even one time, it's the creamiest, most delicious dessert you've ever had. And when you do that, and, you put, it, uh, and you, you put it in the freezer, you literally can have it for breakfast if you're in a hurry and you don't wanna have bulletproof coffee. And in a pinch, that's what my kids eat for breakfast and they go to school and say, daddy gave us ice cream for breakfast and the teachers think I'm a bad dad. Little do they know. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today's guest is Scott Harrison. Uh, who runs charity waters. What he's done is he's created a nonprofit that raised over a quarter billion dollars to build wells and fund clean water projects. Scott hit the Forbes 40 under 40. Uh, We had been circling each other's networks for a long time and I met him at Founders Forum in London a while back. We got a chance to talk and he's just a fantastic guy who's really doing some big stuff to change the world, and I want to talk to him today and let you hear what makes him tick, what he's doing to make the world a better place at huge scale, and just to get inside his mind a little bit. So Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, it's great to be on. So with that intro, are you intimidated? We're, we're gonna you know, psychoanalyze you on the show? <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> let's Let's start. A lot of people have heard of Charity Water because it, you've actually, if, if people are at all involved in the giving and, and the gratitude, and, and just just that whole nonprofit sector, you've made huge waves. So I did their waves water that that was. I, think, I, I like um, it. You didn't laugh.
0: No, I like I'm, it, yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm just kidding. Wait until we get into the well puns. It, it, there we go. It actually wasn't that funny, and and longtime <laughs> listeners know that actually I'm not that funny. No, I'm just kidding, but uh, I I do want to understand. What made you decide that of all the things you could have done with your life? I mean, you know, a lot of really interesting people and there's all kinds of, you know, big things you could have done. What made you choose to do a charity around water?
2: I think I have to start at the beginning uh, for, for some context. Um, I mean, in in some ways, I took uh, one of the most unlikely paths uh, into the nonprofit world uh, <laughs> exactly. by by way of nightclubs and drugs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're so fascinating. <laughs> so, you know, I
2: guess for all all that to make sense, um, you know, a little bit about childhood. I was born in a, in a middle class family in Philadelphia. My dad was a business guy, um, worked at a small company. My mom was a writer. And they had me. And then when I was four, we moved to get closer to my father's uh, job. So uh, lessen his commute. And we moved into a house that had a carbon monoxide gas leak. Now, this is many years ago before they had invented the carbon monoxide detector. So none of us knew it. And we were all just slowly dying in this energy efficient house that was um, leaking these invisible fumes. And, uh, one day, uh, New Year's Day, actually, my mom walked across the bedroom and collapsed unconscious, uh, on the floor. And it took us a while and a bunch of tests, but they, they finally found these massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. So much so that, you know, she, she very easily could have died. And what did die that day was her immune system. So she was irreparably kind of unable to ever function again in the world as a as a normal person. And from that point on, everything made her sick. Normal things like um, the ink from books, uh, car fumes, uh, the radio. She was uh, allergic to electromagnetic radiation. Um, my dad and I, you know, had had some symptoms, but we bounced back because we were really only in the house at night. And this just became a, a huge family tragedy. Family planning stopped. Uh, I move into a caregiver role. So I, I grow. Up, um, taking care of mom, doing the cooking, doing the cleaning, uh, helping her kind of live a life in a bubble, really, a, a life in containment, uh, in avoidance of all the things that might make her sick. So, my parents had a very deep uh, and authentic Christian faith. They decided not to sue the gas company for millions of dollars. Uh, they probably could have won it very easily and just didn't want to become bitter. Yeah, so I was that good Christian kid playing piano uh, in church, playing by all the rules. I didn't smoke, I didn't drink, uh, I, I didn't swear. Any of that. And then 18 happened and life radically changed. And I moved to New York City and I I wanted uh, I wanted to look out for for me. You know, I'd been serving my whole life. I'd been playing by the rules. Now it was my time to explore maybe what the opposite of compliance would look like. (laughs) And I, I joined a band and I grew my hair down to my shoulders, which was an awful idea. I dyed a diet blonde, even a worse idea. Uh, but but I, I learned after our band immediately broke up uh that there was this extraordinary job where you could get paid to drink for free. You would you would basically drink for a living. And it was called a nightclub promoter. <laughs> and if you could get the right people inside the right clubs. You could charge them astronomic amounts for for booze. So people would pay twenty dollars for a, a cocktail, you know, a thousand dollars for a bottle of champagne that that only cost fifty or sixty uh, dollars. And, and I stumbled into this business at 18, 19 and just just loved it. And over the next decade, kind of lost my way um working at 40 different clubs in New York City climbing up the social ladder um better clubs uh, prettier girls you know higher rings at the end of the night uh, in sales and at 28, I'd picked up all of the vices that, you know, I'd sworn as a child I would never, uh, fall into. And I'd smoked two packs of cigarettes for 10 years. I had a serious cocaine ecstasy, MDMA problem. Uh, wow. I was a heavy drinker, uh, heavy gambler. I was into pornography, into strip clubs, just really dark, dark life, pretty much anything short of heroin at this point. And I was in Punta del Este, Uruguay, which is a party town. And I, I was with all of the right people and, uh, I had been chasing the things I thought would make me happy, um, and I got most of them. My girlfriend was on the cover of uh, Vogue magazine, and I drove a BMW, and I had a nice Rolex watch, and I had a grand piano in my New York City apartment, and I was just totally miserable. Dave, I mean, it's it's hard to. <laughs> I get it, it. It's it's like that game of musical chairs where the music just stopped, and and I didn't have a seat, and uh, I, I just kind of realized there'd never be enough and the, the, the pursuit of more. There'd never be enough girls. There'd never be enough money. There'd never be a nice enough apartment. Someone would always have more. And, you know, I, I it's almost like the veil was lifted on this trip because we were in a beautiful setting surrounded by debauchery. And I saw that so many of my clients who were you know, spending this money at our clubs, yeah, you know, they were dating girls younger than their daughters. You know, they torched their marriages. Many of their daughters didn't speak to them. And there was just wreckage everywhere. And and the legacy that I was leaving was not even a meaningless legacy, a destructive legacy. You know, I might be able to get 10 million people wasted over the course of my life. You know, wow. Did I want that on my tombstone. <laughs> you know, here lies a man who has ruined lives and gotten 10 million people drunk and high. So I, I had a pretty radical um Conversion. You know, I, I try to find my way back to uh, to faith in a different way as an adult. You know, it wasn't forced down my my throat, and um, just kind of a general Christian faith. I, I, I became interested in in serving the poor and what would it look like to lead a life of integrity or of generosity or of compassion. Um, I came across a verse in the Bible that says, "True religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world." I was over two in such a major way. I mean, I had done nothing for the poor uh, in a decade, and I I literally polluted for a living. So I come back to New York City, just determined to try to 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 do find another way, and 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 began to ask myself what would the opposite of my life look like. What would the hundred and eighty degree turn look like of a selfish sycophant, a hedonist? And uh, it, it took me about six months of soul searching and. Um, in the summer of that year, I, I, I made a clean break and I sold uh, all my possessions. Um, I put up 2000 DVDs on eBay in a single lot, just trying to purge my old life. And I began to apply to humanitarian organizations I'd heard of, you know, the big ones like UNICEF and the Peace Corps and Oxfam and save the children. And my idea was that I'd, I'd selfishly lived 10 years. What if I gave one of the 10 back and saw where that
1: led me? were you now were you Christian this whole time and sort of just living outside of that or, or had you sort of lost your faith like what, what led question. you to get it back
2: it's a great question I don't think I really lost my faith I think I just put it so far in a dark corner I certainly lost my obedience you know <laughs> uh, so I, I don't think I would have fully rejected everything this was just you know, the rules weren't fun. You know, the rules were there to rain on my parade and it was fun to sleep around. It was fun to go out and get wasted. It was fun to, um, to get high. And so I think the guilt just began to wane over a decade. You know, this kind of, this, this numbness really took over. And I would say that was the best way to describe my life, you know, pre-turn was just this, I just numbed out. I, I didn't feel much. My conscience was numb. My, uh, at one point, my physical body actually went numb. Uh, and I thought I had some horrible disease and I was going getting MRIs and brain scans. And so, um, at this turn, you know, I'm going to do a year of, of humanitarian service and I applied all these organizations and, and then I'm denied by all of these credible <laughs> organizations because of course they are serious humanitarians. You know, these are serious people working on serious issues like hunger and justice and um, you know shelter. So I'm so frustrated because you know I, I could get a thousand people to queue up outside a nightclub and buy twenty dollar cocktails, and I can't even give my services for free. <laughs> So one organization finally, and I've left, I don't, I don't have a place in New York City anymore. Uh, I went to Europe and was just crashing with a friend kind of waiting to see what was next. So um, finally, one organization uh, says, hey, Scott, if you are willing to pay us $500 a month and go live in post-war Liberia, West Africa. Now, this is a country I had never heard of in my entire life before. <laughs> um, I, people don't believe this, but I, I really thought Africa was a country not made up of 40 some. And I was ignorant as it, as it came uh, when it came to international affairs. And uh, I'm like, this is perfect. I have to pay $500 a month for the pleasure of volunteering. And I'm actually going to be sent to the poorest country in the world. Uh, Liberia at that time had just finished a 14 year civil war, a brutal war that, that that decimated the country. And um, I had dusted off a, a degree I'd gotten in photojournalism, in communications at NYU. So I just gone to school part-time because um, my dad had saved up and I was an only child and I felt like the least I could do would, would be to mail in a degree. So I kind of graduated with, you know, C minuses, but did get the degree. And uh, that was the role that I took on this mission was I would be the storyteller. I would be the the, the writer and the photographer. And the cool thing is I had a built-in audience, So I was taking 15,000 emails with me on my club list back when email open rates were 98 or 99%. (laughs) So I, I, I I don't remember what it was at the time, but I think I had a bigger email list than mercy ships, this group that I'd be joining after 20 some years.
1: Wow. So you could reach out and a lot of these were people who were influencers, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, people who were spending, you know, $10,000 in a nightclub.
1: Okay. So you you came out and you decided you'd go tell this story, and I'm sure that was really engaging because like you don't normally get emails like that. So yeah he, he it was, was a extreme. powerful story.
2: It was extreme, I mean, I remember some of the responses. Uh, I'm writing a book at the moment, so I went through this folder of people that were like, wait a minute, three weeks ago you invited me to the Prada party at like <laughs> the flagship store, and now you just sent me a picture of tumors and leprosy, and like, what is going on? Um, you know, I was thrown into extreme poverty. I had never experienced it. So setting foot in Africa for the first time, um, I'm the mission I was joining was a, uh, a group of surgeons that operated on a hospital ship, a massive 522 foot hospital ship. Uh, and it was an old cruise liner, a Venetian cruise liner that had been gutted and turned into a a 42 bed state of the art hospital. And it was a very simple idea, bring the best doctors in the world on their vacation time to people who couldn't afford access to medical care and do it on a giant ship that would sail up and down the coast of Africa. So my job was going to be to document all of this life-changing work, um, so that the organization could raise more awareness and and raise more money. So, um, yeah, it was so extreme. I mean, I, Liberia, when I set foot on land, has no electricity anywhere in the country, there's no running water, there's no sewage system, and there's no mail system. It's just been completely broken. There was one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. So I think our numbers in America are one for every 180 Americans there's a doctor. I'm not sure what it is in Canada, but it's, it's very similar. So you know, you, you, if you got sick, you're just completely out of luck. There were three surgeons in a country of a few million people and no actual hospital where they could operate. So wow. that's what we were there to do. So um, my third day actually in West Africa, uh, the government had given us a football stadium. And I'm jumping into Land Rovers at 5 in the morning in my hospital scrubs. And I've got my cameras. And I'm so excited to see the people that have come out of the bush to meet our doctors. And I know that we have 1,500 surgery slots available over this period of time, uh, a period of months. And I turned the corner in the convoy and there are 5,000 plus people standing outside the stadium. And that was really my first, oh, crap, I am in over my head moment. Um, I I realized that we're going to send 3,000 people who'd come with hope. We're just going to send them home. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough uh, surgery slots. And, uh, I remember just weeping that day, realizing, uh, Mm -hmm. later that some of these people had come, I mean, after talking to them, some of them had walked for months. Some of them had come from neighboring countries with their children, just in the hopes of seeing it. So these are the stories that I was telling, uh, I was sending back to my club list and, you know, some people (laughs) said unsubscribe (laughs) now. I didn't sign up for this. And other people would write me and say, how do I give money? How do I volunteer like you? How do I be a part? You've opened my eyes. I had no idea that this suffering was out there and that these, these stories could have happy endings. You know, these doctors are heroes. They could be in the Maldives with their family. And instead they're taking their three weeks of vacation and they're operating for free every day, uh, on people who, who can't afford it. So, you know, I guess, um, th- that fast forward now two years. So I, I wound up spending about two years with mercy ships. Um, the year turned into another year and of all of the things I'd seen, and I'd spent time in leprosy colonies. Uh, I, I went deep into the countryside as I got off the ship, as I got into the rural areas, I saw the water that people were drinking and I watched human beings drink from swamps and from ponds and from rivers And I watched humans drink brown, viscous water that I wouldn't give my dog. I would never give it to an animal, let alone a human. And I I just started putting this together. You know, lots and lots of people are sick and 50 percent of the country is drinking contaminated water. So I start telling the doctors what I'm seeing. I'm sharing the photos of children drinking from swamps back on the ship and – I'm being encouraged by these doctors. Yeah, why don't you go work on that problem? You know, we're here doing our surgery. You know, but there are, at the time there are a billion people in the world without clean water. So I was really encouraged by them to go and learn more about water, um, explore this issue, and maybe give you know my time and my talent and my energy to maybe this bigger health problem, the question behind the question, the source of so much of this suffering and disease. So at the end of two years you know, I come back to New York city, you know, completely changed. I should, I should mention that I quit all the vices just in one fell swoop. Um, I went out with a massive (laughs) bang the night before I walked up the gangway of the ship, I got completely hammered, probably drank eight or nine beers. I smoked three packs of cigarettes. I I just, uh, I just kind of knew that, yeah, I would have to shed the old life in order to step into the new one. Uh, and you know, that's been true. 12 years later, I've never smoked again. I've never looked at pornography. I, uh, you know, I drink a little bit. That's about it. I've never touch Coke again, MDMA, ecstasy, any of that stuff. I just literally I heard, cut all of it out of my life. we got to talk about that. Uh, one fell I've scoop. had mm-hmm. a few
1: people on talking about addiction. Uh, my friend Joe Polish is doing a huge documentary. Yeah, I think you know Joe. Yeah. Uh, with Genius Network.
2: Yeah, he does amazing he really does amazing work it's, too with that, that
1: it, dumb problem. That's pretty amazing though, but there are very few addicts who have the willpower to quit one of those things versus all of them overnight. What was really going on there? I, I mean, was this a supreme act of willpower? Was this divine intervention? Like like what do you attribute that to? Because you're you're like, you know, one in fifty million people who does that and stays clean for twelve years. Like like what what made that happen?
2: Yeah. I'd say a couple of things. I mean, first I'd say uh, most of us in nightclubs, uh, at least most of my peers, were mm-hmm. never really addicted to the drugs. Okay. Um, we did it out of boredom. You know, so I would do coke for two or three years, get bored with that, do ecstasy for a couple of years, get bored with that, do MDMA or special K, smoke weed for a few years. There was just this kind of we can't show up sober because it's so boring. It's so, you know, having these conversations, shouting over the DJ, playing the same songs night in and night out. Um, So that was really our way of dealing with the the job in a way.
1: Cigarettes, I was completely addicted. There's a rat addict study where they found that that rats will stay addicted if they're in a boring environment. You get them out of a boring environment with social support and toys, and all of a sudden they just naturally Mm -hmm. wean themselves. So so you were no longer bored because you had a mission and that helped you because you weren't You weren't addicted at the level of some addicts. It was a boredom play, not a I'm hiding old trauma play. Okay.
2: That's true. There was a spiritual peace. I mean, I was down on my (laughs) knees praying that, uh, you know, that I would be able to do it, that I would be able to, to shed these addictions and kind of step into this new, um, this new life, you know, a life of purity and integrity and, um, a life that didn't have, you know, a pornography addiction or a gambling problem or, you know, stealing off to smoke a bunch of cigarettes, you know, by the dock with the engineers on the ship. So I think it was a lot of things going on. Um, I would probably give willpower, you know, the least of it, um, new environment surrounded by people on a mission to transform lives, to use their time and their talent in the selfless service of others. Um, and they were all living clean cause that was, those are the rules. I mean, we're on a hospital <laughs> ship, right? It's not the most conducive, like smoking environment. Um, you know, we're surrounded by, by medical professionals bringing health and healing to people. So you know, it's not like a nightclub at four in the morning, you know, where the lights are flashing and the, the bass is booming. So I think the environment really helped. But it, it's been surprise. It was surprisingly easy, Dave, to wow. just kind of walk away from that. Um, you know, I've never, you know, I've never wanted to take a drag. And I'm I'm a little I'm actually a little jealous because my wife, every like four or five months will have a cigarette after that perfect night <laughs> and the great bottle of wine. And, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, I made the promise, but you know, I, I just,
1: uh, so you, you it passes a it about an integrity guy. And, and so you just don't do it cause it's not what you do. I, I, much respect for that.
2: I, yeah. So, you know, so I discover water and, and I'm, I'm, I'm discovering during this time that I, that my storytelling gifts can also be used to improve people's lives, to raise money, to raise awareness, to move people to generosity and compassion. So I come back with my issue, water, um, at the time, the largest water charity in, in our country, in America, was a $15 million a year organization. So a tiny, tiny organization. And as I started talking to my friends back in New York about the water crisis, yeah. yeah, there's no awareness of this. They're like, what are you talking about, right? America has 100% water coverage. Now, recently, there's been a couple of things like Flint and um, even Puerto Rico now where you know where people are starting to think of water. But, you know, this is 10 years ago. There was zero awareness or care given uh about the global water crisis. So I have my issue and um, one of the problems was, at this time, I'm completely broke because nightclub promoters are not good at saving money. We are fantastic spenders. Uh, I'd given Mercy Ships and the people that I'd met on that two-year journey all of the money that I had. And I come back and I'm sleeping uh, in a spare room of my old nightclub uh, promoter's loft and then uh, actually sleeping on the closet floor uh, of the place, and uh, he takes me in and says, "Look, you can start your charity if you want on my living room, you know, and on the kitchen table if you want." And and I'm running around telling people what I've seen, saying I want to solve the water crisis. I want to see an end to to a day when human beings, just because where they're born, you know, have to drink water that could kill them. Um, but I realize because of the people that I knew, there was a huge disenchantment with charity. There was a huge cynicism and a huge um, skepticism when it came to charity. So if I was actually gonna get people to care about this issue, about the global water crisis, I would need a completely new kind of charity to even get them uh, to consider giving. And I realized that almost all of the problems people had uh, was around money. Uh, you would hear things like the black hole. Charities are black holes. I don't know where my money goes. I don't know how much will actually reach the people in need. Um, you know, and oh, I bet the CEO is paying himself $5 million and, uh, you know, living in a, in a house that's really nice. It was just all of this skepticism. Uh, I remember at the time coming across a, a USA Today study that found 42% of Americans distrust charities. So I imagine that almost half the country, Cynical about the the system. So I had a, a couple ideas where I thought, um, I could kind of use the lack of institutional knowledge. Uh, I was, I was literally coming at this as a nightclub promoter turned photojournalist. So I just didn't have any of the trappings of how a charity should run or behave. And I started with a clean slate of paper and and talking to a bunch of friends and said, what would the per- perfect charity look like? How would it work? How would the money flow? And I really had, um, a few big ideas at the beginning. So I have this advantage of starting with a clean slate uh, without the trappings of institutional philanthropy. And I'm just talking to everyday people saying, what would the perfect charity look like that would inspire you to give? And um, through all that conversation, really came up with uh, a few unique ideas. The first, could we find a way to use 100% of every donation we would ever take in perpetuity to only Directly fund water projects, projects that would deliver clean water. Um, and, and open up a second bank account. Where all the overhead would be raised and, and paid separately. Um, people said that's crazy. Like you're living on a freaking closet floor, bro. Like, how are you going to come up with a, uh, you know, a model where all the money you raise, you can't even use to pay salaries or an office. You know, I actually didn't know how any of that would work at the time, but I thought, what a powerful idea. If you could take the number one objection people have about giving the charity and you could take it off the table forever. How much of my money? A hundred percent. And then the second idea was, I just thought charities did a pretty lousy job connecting people to the impact. Like what did the money actually do now? And in our case, we would be funding a variety of water projects, uh, things that actually existed, water systems that could be photographed, that could be geolocated. And I'd met the founder of Google earth at a, at a conference and realized that he was building a place. Google Earth and Google Maps, where we could put every water point we would ever fund in perpetuity for the public to see. So we could make this hyper transparent bet. And, you know, if Dave writes a check to fund a well, uh, I could promise that 100 percent of the money goes directly to fund that well and send you completion photos and a satellite image of the well. And you could actually go and see it someday. So that was the second idea was proof. Could we just prove where the money went? And then the third thing is I wanted to build a beautiful brand. And as I looked at the, the charity space, charity brands were anemic oh, yeah. at best. Um, they peddled shame and guilt to get people to give and to respond. Um, and, and the brands that I loved and was inspired by did the exact opposite. You know, Nike. Uh, and Nike doesn't tell you <laughs> you're fat, ugly and lazy. Turn off the TV and go run a marathon you know, Nike says, Hey, there's greatness within you, right? We believe in you. You you don't have arms. You can still win the shot put competition. You don't have a leg. You can run a marathon. You know, they, the, this idea of, of calling forth kind of the encouragement in people, you know, Apple, the same thing. Everybody remembers the think different campaign. You know, everybody else was marketing 286 P, you know, processor speeds and, so so, I thought um, we could kind of – I wanted to build the Apple or the Nike or the Virgin of charities. And I didn't think you needed a lot of money to build a brand. You needed good taste. You needed to frame it in inspiration and opportunity. You needed to invite people to be a part of something amazing, something creative, something inspiring. And they might come along um, rather than the, the shame and guilt. I'd come across a quote by Nick Kristoff in the New York Times who said that uh, toothpaste – he believes, was peddled with far more sophistication than all of the world's life-saving companies. That that is so true. So why is that possible? I love that you said that. Yeah. And so sad, right, Dave? Like, you know, uh, junk foods companies can spend hundreds of millions of dollars marketing stuff to us that kills us, And, you know, these charities doing these life-saving work, going into places nowhere else wants to go. You know, they had bad websites. They had animated gifts at the time. I mean, come on, we have all recently gone to make a donation and seen the worst checkout flow we've ever seen, right? I mean, they literally show the entire forum, which is scrolling down three pages, and people just walk away. So I just thought we could do a lot of that differently. I thought we'd give away 100% of the money, prove where the money goes, build a beautiful brand, and then the most important thing was to use local partners to actually get the work done. So we wouldn't send people that look like me over to Africa or India or Southeast Asia or Central America. We would raise the awareness and the money. We would win back a disenchanted public's trust. And then the the actual money would be handed to the local organizations because um, I just believed for for any of this work to be sustainable, it had to be led by the locals, uh, not by foreigners. Uh, so Ethi- Ethiopians building wells in Ethiopia to lead their own country forward, to lead their communities forward. So that was the business model. And at day one, I just threw a party in a nightclub and I asked everybody to come. I gave them open bar and I asked them on the way in to please donate twenty dollars uh, it was my 31st birthday party and we raised $15,000. And this time, instead of putting 15 grand in my pocket, we took every single penny to a refugee camp in Northern Uganda. We did our first few wills. And then we sent the photos and the GPS back to all 700 people that attended and said, you did this, your $20 did this. Here's photo proof. Here's geolocation proof, and here's actually a video of clean water flowing. And that was kind of day one. And we've really tried to repeat that cycle um, in many, many, many different ways over, over the last the past 10, ten years. years
1: uh, you've uh, you, you've started a family, and you're still running this nonprofit that's raised two hundred and fifty million dollars, and you spent two seventy. Keeps going up every time I talk to you, and. All right. But you're you're still not paying yourself out of that $250 million. How do you run a charity when the people don't get paid?
2: <laughs> well, I'll tell you. So uh, the business model almost bit me in the butt uh, early on. Um, as you can imagine, the 100% model is kind of a, it was really new at the time. People Start giving like crazy to that side. And there, imagine there are literally two bank accounts, the water bank account that I could never touch. And then this other bank account that somehow we're going to find people excited about overhead, right? Paying for salaries, office rent and, you know, toner for the copier machine. So, um, the water bank account is just filling up like crazy. We raise a couple million dollars in our first year and a half. And I, uh, I, I come up to this point yeah. where we're about to go bankrupt. And I've got $881,000 that I can't touch. Uh, and I have a few weeks left uh, to make payroll. We're going to miss rent. And I've just tapped out everyone I know for overhead. And, you know, I felt incredibly defeated, Um, I was trying to keep on a good face in front of the team, but you know, the thing that people had warned me would happen, the untenable business model was about to come true. And I start, um, the first thing, I guess that that might've been tempting for other people, but, but actually just wasn't ever an option for me. You know, a bunch of people were suggesting, well, go borrow from the 881 grand. You know, you got to pay your people. Money's fungible. Just write an IOU. You'll pay it back later. And I remember just being so incensed by that idea. Like if we borrowed one penny of the public's money to pay ourselves, it would be our integrity would be forever compromised. You know, there'd be a crack in the foundation of this thing. And we might as well all hang our heads in shame and, you know, never be seen again. Uh, So I I was just going to shut the charity down, send out the 881 grand, build as many wells as possible, and then cry business model failure. And, and try something else. Um, at that moment, I had been praying um, with, if I'm honest, with zero faith for some sort of miracle. And um, at that moment, I met a complete stranger uh, who had looked me up and, and was interested in what we were doing, came in, had a two hour meeting with me. And I remember thinking he didn't even like me. I mean, I remember thinking the meeting went awfully. And, uh, I told him about the business model. I told him where we were as an organization. I said, you know, it's working. I can see it. The vision is working, but I'm about to run out of money. And, uh, two days later he sends me an email and says, you know, I've been thinking about it. And, um, I just wired a million dollars into your overhead account. Keep up the great work. So we go from dead to 13 months of capital. And, you know, having a lot of time to reflect, and, and this, this was, um, it was Michael Birch. Uh, he'd started a, a social network called uh, Bebo that he'd later sold to AOL uh, and his wife Sochi. And, you know, I think as much as it was the money, that 13 months of oxygen, it was someone believed in me. You know, someone someone believed in the model, which I really needed at that time. So I was able to use that extra time to say, well, if one person believes in overhead in such an extravagant way, let me go get a bunch of other people and tell them the same story. And uh, we started growing this um, this three-year multi-tiered program to support the staff and the overhead of the organization. Um, and people like Jack Dorsey started joining and people like Sean Parker and Daniel Ek and Johnny Ive at Apple and Angela Ahrens and uh, Depeche Mode and Ed Norton and football players and like this unbelievable group of venture capitalists and tech entrepreneurs said, we're building businesses too. We get it. We want to pay your salaries. We want to pay your engineers salary. We want to pay your UI UX design designer salary, because she's doing beautiful work. Um, And we never really have looked back. We've never been anywhere near critical moments
1: for people listening. uh, There's this kind of public perception that when when people get wealthy, that they're that they become greedy and selfish, like the Mr. Smithers model of the world. Uh, That's not been my experience. Uh, And I've been fortunate to meet some of, of those type of people. And, and almost universally, not always, but almost universally, the people who have done really well, they're actually really desperate to do something meaningful and helpful. And it, and they often don't trust. Yeah.
2: They often don't trust or know who to trust. Yeah.
1: And, and the guys who've operated and built companies understand what overhead means. Like it, it is the lifeblood of a company. So it, it's uh, it's awesome that, that you were able to raise funds from people who understood, okay, this is charitable giving. It's just charitable giving to make the wheels turn and you can fund a well you can fund the guys who did the project management for the well uh, and they're both equally cool so so you did find yeah. the, the good people out there who saw the problem and wanted to help probably because you were good at explaining the problem
2: and I'd say it's about 50 percent of my time today. So this is an ongoing, um, I wouldn't say a challenge, um, but it's, it's kind of an amazing thing, right? Stewarding those 126 relationships um, so that they continue to give as we grow uh, and increase their giving and then bringing new great people into that community. Um, so, you know, recently the president of Tesla just joined the well, um, very generous guy. And, um, you know, we're getting thought capital from these people. We're getting, um, you know, they're introducing us to the their friends. Many of them are hosting dinners. Um, it's an amazing group of people. So it's really a joy to work on, on that program and that group. Those 126 families now have made it possible for over a million people to get a pure experience. So, um, one, one of the that people don't even, they think is just completely crazy, but I said, well, if we're going to say hundred percent, this is 10 years ago, then we're going to have to pay back credit card fees too. Because if you go online right now, Dave, and make a $100 mm-hmm. donation on your Amex, I don't get 100 bucks. I get $97 and change. Right. So we actually have been paying back credit card fees, which was a great idea 10 years ago. Now it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. But we really mean it. We really, really mean it that um, 100% goes straight to the field and, and then we track and prove it. So, so, so do you take, do um, you take
1: Bitcoin? Uh, we have, actually. Okay, cool. We have. Lower transaction fees there, even if it takes a while. Yeah, no, uh, that, that's a, a profoundly amazing story. So you you just kind of went out there, completely changed your life and changed the lives of, of millions of other people. Um, but uh, you and I've had a chance to chat offline and you, you you told me it was OK for me to go here. Yeah. One of the things that, that I learned in the course of of just my life is this idea of you put the oxygen mask on first, something we talked about at the Bulletproof conference this year a lot, uh, where if you're not uh, if you're not keeping the home fires lit you're not doing the things that that give you energy which clearly serving others gives you energy in, in a in a very obvious way um but there's also you know your your dad your kids have to go to school uh, you you've you probably have a mortgage and house payments and stuff like that and you don't I'm in New
2: York City bro we don't know. <laughs> nonprofit people don't.
1: <laughs> that's a fair point almost no one does these days it seems like not in New York uh, or any of the big cities but you know, are, are you? Uh, how's this working out for the leadership there? I you, you go to some of these charities, uh, like you said, they're they're you know driving Bentleys or you know living in these giant mansions, and you're you're not. You know, you're you're living in New York, which is an expensive place, but you know you're you're not you're not rolling in a Tesla. Uh, how how's that working out? I, I mean, are you are you getting enough? Are you are you taking care of yourself and your core team enough with that money, or is it stretched too thin?
2: Gosh, there's a lot I could say about that. Um, you know, so we're, th- there are benchmarks, right, of where we all should be paid. Yep. Um, I am purposefully paid um, under that benchmark, and that's really a, that's a thing we've talked about yeah. Um, I, I'm going in, you know, I'm, in, in other words, the board is trying to pay me more and has been for years and, and I'm just uncomfortable with it. I think part of that is just because of the places where I speak, I go into Fargo, I go into, um, you know, some, I go to Des Moines, I go into just, you know, uh, places all around the country where, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year is like really, really great money. Now in New York city with two kids and a set of grandparents that we're completely supporting and my wife and I give away 20% of our income. Like it's not, you know, it's, uh, it's not, but, um, my, my, I would never want to give people an excuse to not give. So I'm so aware of that. So, um, someone said to me once, uh, this is a nonprofit leader that I really admire, uh, it was a board member on that nonprofit and they're like, we keep trying to give this guy a raise and every time we manage to do it, he just gives it away. <laughs> and I remember being so inspired by that. I'm like, man, that's how I want to live my life, you know, with, with openness and, um, you know, I think with kids now, I'm starting to think a little differently about it. But I think I told it. it's yeah, like, you this, like, you know, my wife and I, we, I think our total net worth, you know, with a 401k is about two hundred thousand dollars. We've given away five hundred thousand dollars in the last eight years since we've been married. Would it be great to have a zero, you know, on both of those? Sure. But that's kind of, I don't regret giving away a half a million dollars. I've been able to be a part of my friends' causes. I've been able to to support my own cause. I just believe you have to eat your own dog food. I cannot be out there asking people to do something that I'm not willing to do in a radical way. So, you know, I'm, I'm out there asking um, both the rich and poor to give of their hard-earned money every single day. And I just feel like I have to be out giving them. Maybe that's, uh, you know, so maybe I just need to figure out how to, you know, to, to make more so that I can give more. But, you know, we're, we're, we're blessed. You know, we live in a 950 square foot apartment in New York City, and I walk to work in seven minutes. So I've really optimized less space. So that I can be there for my kids. Um, a lot of my job is on the road. You know, this was, I'm in Dallas today. This was flight 54 of the year coming out here, which is down 30% from, you know, a a pre-children level. So when I'm home, I want to be there in the morning and at the breakfast table and I want to do bath time. So a lot of these are just choices. So we're, we're doing, we're doing okay. You know, I, I think I told you this, you know, I, I was going to write a book. uh, I was going to write a memoir and. And, uh, people have been pursuing me for years to kind of get the life story out there. And, you know, my wife's like, finally, this is some money that we can keep. And, uh, I start meeting with all the publishers and I realize, no, honey, it's not because I'm not going to be able to sleep at night using my nonprofit for personal gain to promote it. So I wound up giving away the whole advance and all the profits. And I feel great about that. You know, now I'm a massive donor. I'm going to be a seven figure donor to the organization that I started Um, which is really exciting to me. I don't kind of begrudge that. I don't want that back. Um, and I just have an abundance mentality, I think. And, um, I don't know. Does
1: it create marital stress for you?
2: We just live so simply. I mean, the nice thing about living in nine hundred fifty square feet is you're done buying furniture like on day one, you know, (laughs) fair point. You got we got two beds, two beds for the kids, a big bed for us, a couch and a kitchen table and you're done. (laughs) (laughs) Nice.
1: So she's she's on board with that. Uh, like when you
2: she's on board. So we worked together for nine years. Okay. So I, I I forgot to tell you that story. She was um she was the second person that joined me. She was employee number two at the organization and um and our creative director, our graphic designer turned creative director. So this was really a decade of work together. Um, she was there when we almost went bankrupt. You know she was there for the ups and the downs and um all the stories along the way. She's I've been to Ethiopia thirty times now um, she's probably been on 13 or 14 of those trips with me. So yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think we'd love to have more money to give away, to be honest. Sure. <laughs> we're giving our time. Sure. I'm raising money, but you know, it's one thing to have a social entrepreneur in my office and give them an hour of advice to be another to send them away with a $50,000 check.
1: It, um, that, that's what I'd love to do. I, I hear you just, uh, just make sure that you're not, uh, that, that you're not giving away so much uh, that you're worried about your kids, because because that that's what can take you out of the flow state, right? Like like there, there's a fine line. It sounds like you're surfing it really well, but I I support your yeah. board in saying you should get a little raise and and you should have a, you should have a, a feeling of, of safety and security there. And and you probably have that anyway because you know the the universe provides <laughs> when you when you do good stuff. Yeah, it always and. Does.
2: and- and my parents are helping out with free school at the moment. And, and we're kind of happy to let them do that. You know, I'm an only child. Um, they lived a very modest um, lifestyle their, their entire life. And they're happy to pay for, for free school. Um, for one, maybe two, I don't know. (laughs) So we just, yeah, we're, we're okay. Um, it's funny. A lot of people are, are, are always worried about me. I'm like, do you understand where, like, I just lived in a village where people are walking eight hours a day for, you know, for dirty water, living on 50 cents a day, you know, without roofs in their head. Like, I'm okay. Don't worry about us. You know, we're, we're really, you know, we're, 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 we're trying to, um, you know, I just want to be, a, I think I get it. Like you want us just to be healthy bridges where we can bring our full selves to the work yes. and, um, and, and bridge that gap and, and help some of the poorest people in the world, you know, thrive and, and live better lives. So the, I, I appreciate where it's coming from a lot, really.
1: There's, there's something profound that happens when you go to a, a really poor place. I, uh, I remember going to Cambodia, which had recently finished mm-hmm. the civil war and, and you see just this extreme poverty and it's, it does reset resets a lot of of your view of the world and for people listening who haven't had a chance to travel the good news about traveling to parts of the world like that is that it is dirt cheap (laughs) uh the other good news is that uh, you'll come back changed it's it's not possible to see that and be like oh wait you know i'm not feeling gratitude today (laughs) like trust me when you see how some people live you can be grateful for anything you have no matter no matter how uncomfortable you think it is all right, so so there's that piece of advice. You know, travel if you can afford to, even to one of these these uh less traveled places because you'll you'll learn a lot. But let let's talk about water. I I carried when I was in Nepal, I carried iodine tablets and in fact I, I just found out I probably had a long-standing case of Giardia, which is a real common waterborne illness. Yeah. I picked up another actually life-threatening parasite, uh, probably from someone who lived in one of these countries and had come to the US and was working in a kitchen. Uh, and for about four months of my life, it was, it was hell. Like my, my gut didn't work. My brain didn't work. Uh, and it, it was a kind of amoeba that drills through your gut lining, moves into your brain and kills you. Uh, I finally found it out from, a uh, a tropical disease specialist in New York named Dr. Cahill. Dr. Cahill. 80 year old, like luminary in. Oh, I know well, him well. In, the, yeah. in the NGO, like the charitable giving thing, he's actually bigger than he is as an author of eight books on tropical medicine. But US doctors Ooh. couldn't solve this problem, and this guy could in two hours because he'd worked in all the countries where you're creating clean water. So I, firsthand, I know what dirty water does to you and good god nobody wants that like it it is a burden on your soul to have stuff growing in there that shouldn't be uh, so what are you i mean what are you doing tell me more about the water side of things
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing that you have a personal uh, experience and connection. I mean, I think it's so foreign to, you know, most people who are probably listening, like, what do you mean? Water comes out of taps. You know, (laughs) maybe I take showers that are too long. Heck I buy bottled water. You know, maybe I feel guilty about that. I spend so much on bottled water and my tap water is probably okay. Um, you know, if you were born in one of these countries, um, it just doesn't look like that at all. Um, so, you know, the, the, the global stout, uh, of the moment is 663 million people live globally without access to clean water. So it's about a 10th of the planet. And if you are living in one of these places without clean water, um, not only is your water dirty and um, giving putting you at risk for giardia, bilharzia, schistosomiasis, um, you're walking for it because you don't live close to the water. You know, this this is a world without taps. This is a world without pipes. Um, a lot of the work that we do in, in Ethiopia, you know, these communities uh, are the women are walking five, six, seven, sometimes eight hours round trip to a, uh, a river, uh, a, a little trickle, a little spring that's not uh, that's not clean. And, and, you know, is they're sharing that water with the animals. So. It, it's an, it, it, the, the burden falls to the women and the children. So that's another thing um, just culturally throughout these countries where we work throughout Africa and India and Southeast Asia, it's the job of the women and the, and the girls to get the water. So 40 billion hours are wasted by women just in Africa every year, fetching water.
1: How many human this, lifetimes this, is that? Have you ever done the math? Uh,
2: we haven't done that. That's a great You've way to think it. about
1: it. Um, human way to think
2: about it. Um, it's worse, it's more than the entire global workforce of the country of France. Yeah. So every working hour, you know, of a European nation is more than that. So there's, there's this, it's an unbelievable way to, to, um, I love that idea. Like, how many lives would that? I, did there
1: I be? do that with Bulletproof Radio. Fifty million hours of this. I, I either killed 127 people last time I did the math, or I improved their lives. But that's the number of human lives that have been consumed by the content that we're recording right now. It's like, it better be worth it, right? <laughs> So, so, That's incredible. Okay. I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to go do the math afterwards. Okay. I
2: probably need to put it, put a it in your captain. story.
1: It, it actually, it really, 40 billion hours is, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of entire human lifetimes just gone carrying water. Like it, it's not okay.
2: Yeah. So that's the problem that we're dealing with. And, you know, I uh, look, I think um, it's hard. We, we go numb when we hear statistics and, you know, uh, 663 million people like we've never seen 663 million people anywhere. Um, uh, you know, for me, I've always really latched on over the last 10 years to these stories of of people trapped in the water crisis. And, you know, one story that I that I tell that just impacted me deeply um, I'd heard of this woman in Ethiopia who'd been walking eight hours for for dirty water. And as the story went, one day she walks back into her village and she had a heavy clay pot on her back. So 40 pounds of water plus another 10 pounds of the clay pot and the water's dirty. And at the end of her eight hour journey, she slips and falls before she reaches the home and she breaks her pot and all the water runs out. And as the story goes, she takes a rope and she hangs herself from the tree mm. that was right next to the path. Now, I remember thinking that's not true. Uh, you know, this is a story you tell an international donor to shock them, to, to make them feel great about the work. But I just couldn't shake that kind of mental image of a woman slipping and, and ending her life in, in such great despair. And I actually wound up tracking down the story and getting a, a pass from my wife to go and live in this village. Um, completely offline, no um, cell signal or anything, for about a week. And I met her mom, and I met her best friend that walked with her that day. And I, I saw her grave, this little pile of rocks behind a church. And I met the priest who told me 2,000 people turned up at her funeral. And you know, I walked in her footsteps down to get water. I walked back to the tree. And uh, I, I didn't know this until I spent time in the, the village, but she was a 13-year-old girl
0: tired
2: and bent over. This was a 13 year old girl who took her own life. Um, as I got to know more about the story, um, all of her friends thought she committed suicide because she was overcome with shame because she'd let her family down. And wow. not only had she spilled the water they needed to make dinner and to use that night, but she had broken the clay pot, which was a valuable asset to the the family and, and the, the shame of facing them, um, because of her carelessness was just too much. So I, I have gone back to that story, uh, on bad days, you know, when, uh, it's easy to, you know, think about giving up or, I mean, that's what we're doing it for. 13 year old girls should not be hanging on trees because they were born into situations where the dirty water was eight hours away. Um, and the irony in so many of these places is there's clean groundwater trapped couple hundred feet beneath the village. So that's what we've tried to do over 10 years. Um, it started out drilling wells. Now there are 11 different solutions. So we've always been solution agnostic. And sometimes we dig wells, drill wells, uh, build huge rainwater harvesting systems, gravity fed systems, filtration systems, um, bio sand filters, you know, whatever the appropriate technology is for that country. Um, you mentioned Cambodia now we can't drill in most of Cambodia because there's arsenic. So, what we do there is um, it's the largest bio sand filter program in the world. And we train the locals how to make these amazing $65 units of sand, gravel, and rock. And after 21 days, Good bacteria grows, that kills bad bacteria, and they're pouring dirty water in and getting clean water out uh, for the cost of $65 a family. Um, And they made it with their own hands. It becomes a prized possession. Their water filter um, in a place where we might have a a refrigerator. So it's an amazing thing to be able to take someone from, you know, to give the time back to a woman, to give the health back to a family to a, a child. Um, so many kids are dying from what you just described under five. Yep. So it's one of the top killers. You know, the, the immune system is so weak as a child. So I've, I've been with so many people who have lost their children to diarrhea. You know, my kids get diarrhea, bro. I don't know about yours, but like <laughs> we, we go, you know, to the Dwayne Reed and we, buy the blue stuff, like the hydration stuff and we clean water cures dysentery. But if you don't have any clean water, then the cycle of dysentery spirals into death by dehydration. It's a horrible thing. So it's been an amazing journey, really, to be able to, uh, to bring people from dirty water to clean water. And um, since I told a, a terrible story, um, I'll tell a happier story on the other side. Um, we, we've been working in Uganda for 10 years now. And in fact, just a couple weeks ago, uh, I went to see our very first well that was built from the nightclub party, uh, my 31st birthday. So this is, uh, uh, this was 11 years ago and it was still working. It was amazing. 11 years later to see about a million liters per year coming out of a pump. Um, cause a bunch of people threw money into a bin at a nightclub a decade ago. Um, it, near this area, there was a, uh, a village we went into and, You know, we had built a water project and we sat with the women and just said, how's your life different now? Like, you know, has Charity Water improved your life? You know, you've got clean water near your house now. And this one woman named Helen starts telling us her story. And she says, you know, I used to walk a far distance and um, I would make a few trips a day. And uh, all I would have is these two yellow jerry cans. These, this ten gallons of water was all I could collect a day. And she said, every day I would make choices. What do I do with this limited amount of water? Do I cook with the water? Do I garden? Do I clean up the place? Do I wash my husband's clothes? Do I wash my kids' school uniforms? Do I wash their bodies? She said, I'm an African woman, and we always put our families first. So she said, I never use the water for myself. She said, now that there's charity water uh, project right near my house. She says, I am beautiful now. Wow. We're like, what do you mean, Helen? Of course you're a beautiful Ugandan woman. She says, no, you don't understand. For the first time I feel beautiful because I have enough water for my face and my body and my clothes. And I mean, that blew me away. You know, I'm typically on stage talking about health impacts of water and economic impacts of water and time saved and educated, all this stuff. Like this, The this simple idea that just increasing the quantity of water was able to restore dignity to a beautiful 60-some-year-old Ugandan woman um, who should have had that her entire life and had to wait 65 years. Um, for someone to come in and 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 care enough about her to provide that solution, so um, th- we kind of hold these two things in tension. There's deep suffering and horrible stories of of death and um, despair, and then you have these wonderful stories as people uh, are able to flourish and thrive uh, when clean water is brought into their community.
1: Man, that, that's uh, that's some profound work that you're doing, and and. I applaud you for just thinking about the system of this rather than going at it from a, you know, hospitalship perspective, which is in and of itself, an amazing gift and endeavor. Uh, But going to back to root causes and yeah, if we don't have basic water uh, sanitation, uh, the, the spread of disease, it's just about unchecked. And a lot of people listening probably don't know, but you must about like the very first studies of epidemiology. Uh, were around what's what's causing these outbreaks in London. And the, one of the first maps ever mm-hmm. done was around, oh, look, these are the infected wells because the clusters mm-hmm. of outbreaks are around water. And it-, it
2: Collar outbreaks in New York City. Yeah. Union Square.
1: Yeah. Actually, was that New York, not London?
2: Uh, both. Okay. Yeah, we had a we had a cholera outbreak at uh, at Union Square. There was a fountain in Union Square that was contaminated and killed many
1: many people. And, and so it, it, this this I think makes it real for a lot of people who are probably you know you're driving in traffic right now, or you're sitting at work listening to this, or you're exercising, or whatever you do when you listen. Uh, but yeah, like like more people in the world are affected by this than there are in the United States. Like it, it's that big of a of a thing. Uh, what uh, what can people do? I mean, charitywater.com... dot uh,
2: yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, for our 10th anniversary, one of the ways that people have been supporting us over the decade is by donating their birthdays. I think we talked about this on the bus. Um, you know, we said years ago, look, people don't need more crap for their birthday. We live in a world of stuff, of materialism. And, you know, typically we have our birthday and we, we celebrate us. Um, Or we are celebrated by our friends and family with things, with ties and handbags and wallets and jewelry and gift cards. And we said many years ago, what if we could get people to donate their birthday? to say, don't give me any crap, Uh, I'm not going to throw a party, and I'd like to use my birthday in the service of others, and involve my friends and my family in that. And this idea just uh, really exploded. Uh, The sticky marketing kind of message was, ask for your age in dollars. So a 36-year-old would ask for $36 from everyone they knew. And uh, early on, this seven-year-old kid in Austin, Texas, said, well, I'm going to ask everyone I know for $7. And he starts going door-to-door in Austin, raises $22,000. Right after that, an 89-year-old donates her birthday and she says, I've lived an amazing life. I realize my I have lived double the life expectancy in so many of these places where Charity Water is working. And if my birthday could provide clean water so people could have more birthdays, then I don't want anything for my 89th. And, uh, you know, we thought this was kind of just this beautiful idea that started to spread. And, um, in fact, uh, birthdays then led to other fundraising campaigns and people ran marathons and donated their wedding rings. Uh, boy, I, I have, I have stories and stories from this amazing community. Um, and that, that community raised over $50 million, uh, helping almost 2 million people get clean water. But as we as we came into our tenth year, we said this is great and this needs to keep happening. Um but people only did one birthday for Charity Water. You know, you you, you donate your birthday, your people give. The idea was actually sticking. So people the next year would do the birthday for another cause. But we had to keep getting new people every single year um, to, to grow the organization. So at our 10th anniversary, we said, what if we could approach this the way uh, many of the businesses today are uh, the Netflixes and Spotify's and Dropboxes? What if we could create a community of people who would show up for us month in and month out, um, with whatever they could give. Uh, $30 a month to give one person clean water, $300 a month to give 10 people clean water, $10 a month, um, for people. And, and could we create a dynamic, generous community of people from all over the world, um, who still might do their birthday, but they would actually stick with us. So we launched that, um, community called the spring uh, for our 10th anniversary, um, uh, and and we we created a, a short film, which you know if people wanted to see some of the images behind this. Um, it's it, it's probably the most moving piece of content I think we've ever created. It's just charitywater.org/slash/the spring film. Um, but that's really been our focus: is inviting people into this new community. We're at about to break ten thousand people. And people are giving an average of $32 a month. Um, so that's really our, uh, I guess that's our, our ask these days is join this community. Um, if you can give 30 a month, if you can give 60 a month, if you can give a hundred a month, if you can give 10 a month, hundred percent of the money goes directly to projects Um, and we're, we're really looking for ways to show people where their money is going to inspire them. Um, we actually just sent a team to Cambodia where a lot of these donations were going and we made a six part video series of how bio sand filters are made and who are the people that are getting our money in Cambodia and then serving their own communities. And why are they doing what they do? Why are they not working at a bank and why are they out there, um, as hydrologists helping people? So, um, that's, that would be Probably the main ask, and I think we actually set up um, a special link just for, for people listening, just charitywater.org slash bulletproof, where people could watch the the film, they could learn more and, um, and join us. And my wife's a member. I'm a member. Um, it's uh, it think, is an amazing way to join our community. I think
1: we set up that link just so you can tell whether being on the podcast was effective. Like there's no uh, there's no. Affiliate or any other weird thing like that going on there I think that's just if you guys are gonna go there go to charitywater.com slash bulletproof So Scott knows the interview is worth his time uh, and, uh,
2: well, I think, I think what we did, yeah, yeah. There's no, yeah. gosh, there's nothing paid or anything like that. But I think we wanted just to be able to, to track, like, you know, we know you have an amazing community that cares and, um, it'd be awesome to be able to go back to you and said, look, you know, your community has given a thousand people, clean water, 2000 people, clean water.
1: So, so um, if you're listening, you listen for a long time. So yeah, we, we'd love for people to check that out. Awesome. Uh, and, and people always know, I always ask you to do something at the end of the show. Usually, it's you know, read this book or, you know, go out and do this or whatever. But if you're in a position to support Charity Water, I mean, you just heard the story. Like This is the most legitimate charity I've ever seen. And having spent a quality time with Scott, everything he's saying is real. And uh, so if if you're up for that, go to charitywater.com slash bulletproof. Um, .org. I'm oh, .org, sorry. .org. Charitywater.org slash bulletproof. <laughs> I think it's probably all lowercase. I have no idea if, if we got the the case right, but we'll make sure that's right for you. And make a... Uh, make a little donation there, and when, when we hear how much it is, I'll announce it on Bulletproof Radio, uh, just to see how much water we give to people. Every episode I talk about gratitude and how important it is. This is a way of just showing gratitude for how amazingly lucky you are that you can turn on your water, and it'd be, it'd be awesome to help some people out that way. So I'm, I'm pleased to do that, and of course I'll be making a donation too. I have no idea what that donation's going to be yet, because, well, i got to talk to the boss. That'd be my wife, but we'll, uh, we'll do something to help too, because <laughs> that's how I roll as well. Thanks, man. All right. I got one more question for you, Scott. If someone came to you tomorrow and they said, based on everything you've learned in your life, uh, I want your advice. The three most important things I can do to perform better as a human being. Three most important things. What are they?
2: Uh, two come to mind immediately and then I'll work out the third. Um, I think the first, the first is really uh, being clear about the values that you are going to live your life by. Um, and, and, you know, that's the value system of your, your family, you know, your person. And then I think it extends to your family and your company. What is most important to you? So one of the, my favorite interview questions for candidates and say, what are the values that you live by and work by? And I can't tell you how many people can't answer the question it's like they've never thought of it. Um, you know, for me, it's integrity above all else, respect, generosity, um, passion. Like we, we would all have our different values that we care so deeply about. Um, and I think it's, it's actually doing the work to say, where do I want to be? What is my legacy? You know, what what do I want my kids and my grandkids to say about me? You know, is it that he was a rich guy? No. You know, it was that my dad, you know, or my grandfather lead led a life of, you know, extreme integrity of compassion. And he was generous, uh, beyond belief, right? So I think c- create the value system for your life, live by it. Um, the second thing is just, you know, really find ways to, to give of your time and your talent and your money. Um, the more you give, the more you give, uh, it's one of my favorite kind of expressions. I don't know who said it, maybe
1: i reddit or Did something the more you give the more you get you said the more you give them no i mean the more you give the more you, you know, get? explain that to me yeah. I'm not, that one didn't land for me
2: <laughs> i want everyone to get addicted to giving right, got it okay so you know a lot of people are kind of holding things so tightly and the more time you give the more time you want to yeah, give I see. whether it's mentorship uh, the food bank the more money you give the more you train yourself into that open hands just yes yes i'll give yes i'll come the, the more you want to. And I think we're so many people are addicted to getting that we're addicted to taking. Um, so I, I, I just encourage people to give and, and, and not deprive themselves of, uh, of that amazing blessing you know, of, of being able to give the resources you have. And maybe that's not money for a lot of people. You know, my wife and I aren't able to write the checks we'd love to. So we're trying to give in, in other ways, um, uh, by mentoring people, by just showing up for, for the poor uh, every day with as much integrity as we can. Um,
1: you got value third and giving and number three. Hmm.
2: The third one for me would be around, you know, faith. Uh, I think, I mean, that's, that's one of the most important things in my life is kind of having that, um, that, center of gravity. Um, you know, it's not true for everyone, uh, for sure, but it's not true for the organization even, but you know, I, I for me, prayer, uh, belief that, you know, there is a God who cares and, and can be active and kind of that I could be in dialogue with, um, has been a really important thing in my life. And, you know, I, we, we could do an hour on, you know, what I believe are just miracles, uh, radical, you know, answers to those prayers that just didn't make any sense at the time. Um, but we're, Really, you know, for the benefit uh, of others, right? Not selfish prayers of like, God, I want to be worth millions of dollars or <laughs> uh, have a big home or uh, you know, Maserati. Um, so, yeah, I'd say the three things for me is is values, generosity, and then you know, for me, it's been prayer and, and belief.
1: Beautiful. Well, thanks for sharing that wisdom. Uh, you've uh, you've done so many incredible things, both on on a personal front, the way you completely transformed your life and all that stuff and you've done things on a much much bigger level and and, you know thanks for doing all the work you're doing i am truly grateful for it and for people listening that was charitywater.org slash bulletproof Uh, help someone get a drink of clean water and maybe someday they'll actually be able to uh, take that clean water and turn it into a cup of coffee but in the meantime let's start with water (laughs) so thanks for listening to this episode i hope it was inspiring for you as it